Hello, welcome to the Hot Seat. I'm Martin Rogers here with Professor Tony Travers to discuss the Labour Leadership Contest. Tony, welcome. Hi. So it's a little under three months since the general election. With a little over a month left of this increasingly acrimonious Labour Leadership Contest, where are we? Well, I think the Labour Party, if I can answer that question, is clearly in trouble. I mean, it's uh, effectively landed itself with a uh, full-throttle civil war uh, just after a general election in which many people at the top of it thought they were going to win. And that has all sorts of implications for the Labour Party. But as the contest becomes more acrimonious, um, there is, of course, a risk that some of the uh, struggle during the leadership campaign will rub off into the party after it, whoever wins. And so that would continue to poison the Labour Party uh, at a time when, frankly, they need to come up with a convincing alternative to the Conservative government. Is the Labour Party currently facing a, I think, existential crisis to decide what it is about, whether it is a serious party of government or um, a leftist pressure group to snipe and attack from the sidelines? I think it's trying to do two things at once, which is why this is so complicated. It's trying to uh, choose a leader and at the same time, as part of the same exercise, define itself. But clearly there are people, and this has always been the case, who are on the left, and there are some on the right as well actually, but on the left, who would prefer to keep their uh, principles intact and to be able to attack uh, the government of the day feeling that they are you know, still morally pure in some ways. And clearly there's an element of that in uh, some of those who are now involved in the Labour leadership, only supporting at least one of the candidates in the Labour leadership contest. That is that they're, they're people who really would like to be able to keep their views pure and not get tangled with the messy compromises that being a broad coalition political party trying to defeat another broad coalition political party would inevitably entail. So how are the various factions and wings within the sort of coalition that makes up the Labour Party and the Labour movement, how are their various ones doing and is it important to talk about who's up and who's down? Well, it clearly is important. Um, you know, um, there is a, a, a right-left spectrum in this uh, race. Uh, Liz Kendall is clearly the representative of Blairites, which is, you know, I mean, whether she likes that or not, she will always be seen like that, remembering that Tony Blair was the most successful election-winning Prime Minister uh, this side of uh, 1945, possibly ever. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who after all only got on the, into the race because of uh, other candidates effectively ensuring he did so, um, now appears to be the front runner. And he represents a much more traditional 70s and 80s leftist view of the Labour Party, which has been somewhat side or very significantly sidelined in recent years. And then between that, you've got the other two candidates. Uh, who are, you know, trying to move around between these two but not be defined by either of them. One bookmaker now makes Jeremy Corbyn favourite to be elected as Labour leader. Is there an element of the novelty candidate about him and the impact that he's had in the media and, um, or is he a serious and genuine contender to win this election? I think the interesting thing about Jeremy Corbyn is that he is widely accepted to be charming, a uh, decent man, so that he's one of those politicians who people on the other side respect him. Uh, they see him as consistent over time, personally charming, 
And these are you know, great attributes for a politician, frankly. But I think uh, what's also happening here is that those attributes and a classic centre-left platform, uh, or actually well to the left of centre-left platform within British politics, is available now in a political world, and you can see this elsewhere in Europe, where there is a clamouring for some sort of antidote to what a number of people on the left see as, you know, the unending revolution of the neoliberals. And this is you know, allowing a group of people to coalesce, coalesce around that with a view to perhaps finally showing that if only there were a proper left-wing platform on offer at a general election, that could win. And is um, Corbyn's novelty an important factor in his current media profile? Well, it is, he is novel, he is different, and it's true the British media, all media, uh, do like something that's new and interesting, and it is new and interesting as a phenomenon, no question about this. I mean, lots of people inside the Labour Party, particularly on the centre and the right of the Labour Party, are in despair about all of this, but, you know, from the media's point of view, this is a fascinating midsummer story, it'll run all the way through August now, right the way through into the final voting. Uh, and, you know, it's a great story at a time when there aren't many others, certainly of this kind, and certainly no other politics around. So uh, it is a good running story, and it's an easy to understand one. So what are the sort of issues that are likely to be important when the ballots do get cast in just over a month's time? I think the key, the underlying uh, key question is, does the Labour Party want to be capable and convincingly capable of defeating the Conservatives in 2020. That's the only thing a, uh, you know, one of these big block political parties ever really needs to think about. Now, of course, within that idea, they've got to uh, make decisions about policy positions, about the economy in particular. Now, you can see that, you know, if Liz Kendall were the uh, Labour leader, these decisions would be very different to those probably of Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper, and certainly radically different, if you read Jeremy Corbyn's economic policy, from Jeremy Corbyn's. Now, you know, and all of that up against George Osborne, who is, you know, by common consent, in a good position at the moment as Chancellor. So they've got to think about, you know, coming up with something that will convince the electorate that Labour's economic uh, credibility is higher than George Osborne's. So recently two large trade unions have come out back in Corbyn. What impact will that have on the race? Well, of course, trade unions no longer have block votes in this race, so they, they can't, as it were, come out for Corbyn and then just deliver a great block of votes. But clearly, uh, for the trade unions, not only those that would have been expected to vote necessarily for Corbyn, but several of them actually now... Uh, after a number of years of, of public sector pay restraint and a squeeze on parts of the public, or significant parts of the public sector, perhaps feel that there is an opportunity to, hear, to vote for a candidate who would somehow magically expand the public sector. And that, in a sense, is what uh, I think they are hoping, that they'd get their kind of politician as leader of the Labour Party and then influence the debate. And in fairness... You know, if Corbyn were to win, it would influence the debate. If you read some of the comments from centre-right commentators, they are in some ways worried because they think that if Corbyn becomes Labour leader, it will sort of create a much wider spectrum of decision-making or, or political debate in Britain that would affect the government as well. The unions 
effectively influenced the Labour leadership last time with the election of Ed Miliband. But this is quite a different different candidate this time. So is, does this tell us something about the sort of role of unions in politics, leftist politics and politics more widely in the UK? It probably does. I mean, we'll have to, it'll have to be deconstructed, I suspect, all of this. I mean, there's, uh, it's clear that a number of the new MPs who won in May this year, new Labour MPs, uh, have strong union backing. The question of how far the unions worked on that, of course, has been debated as well. But, you know, it may be that the Labour Party is taking a leftward turn and, you know, as a number of others have said, perhaps, you know, at one level, having a, an absolutely visible centre-left choice, very different from the Conservatives, would test in real time whether the public really does want a radical left-wing alternative. I mean, the only way of finding that out, I suppose you might say, would be to try it. Um, all I'd say is that the evidence hitherto uh, has not been particularly convincing that the British public wants that kind of radicalism on the centre-left. Certainly in, the, in terms of the media, a lot of the waves have been made by the Corbyn campaign. But is it difficult for the usual channels, i.e. pollsters, to get a real and accurate hold on how the candidates seem to be doing amongst the membership at the moment? I think it's very hard for opinion polls to work out what the Labour membership and those who are joining the Labour Party for three pounds in order to be able to vote in this election, what they're going to be like. And in fairness to the pollsters who've tried this, they've made that absolutely clear. There's no pretense. It is difficult. However, uh, we've seen one or two, well, re, as it were, public polls and then a certain amount of private polling, which has miraculously found its way into the media, uh, showing that Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, is doing well. And, you know, one of the things you can say about his campaign is that it is definitely clearly different to the other three and offers something that's rather precise, which does appeal, it would appear, to a significant number of Labour members, and I suspect the polling has picked up that. Whether or not Labour members are up to the task of choosing a candidate who can really go head-to-head -head with the Conservatives, well, you know, only time would tell. Is Corbyn, to some extent, a Farage-type figure for the left... So are we seeing now that um, the more extreme ends of British politics are being um, rallied round these sort of leadership figures? In many ways, there are very few differences between Corbyn and Farage. But in this particular aspect, is that what we're seeing, this phenomenon? We may be seeing the emergence of leaders in uh, some in political parties that are not the government who do try to articulate or do articulate quite powerful minority views in politics. You know, UKIP did get uh, a reasonable percentage in the general election. And it may well be that there is this fragmentation with the emergence of leaders who appeal to a segment of the electorate. But of course, you only have to say it like that to see how powerfully dangerous it is for the opposition if it gets in that position. Because... The only way you can win is by having a broad coalition which appeals to a wider range of people. And, of course, you know, if we end up with, I'm not saying we will, but the Conservative Party, you know, with 35 to 40% of the vote and the rest of the vote fragmented, 
then the Conservatives in a first-past-the-post voting system will find it very easy to win, so long as they can hold their coalition together. Brings me on to the, the final question then. Is there a chance, if Corbyn is elected, of a Corbyn-led Labour Party becoming a government, or due to the nature of the British electoral system, would we have effectively a single-party state, the Conservatives being able to take the sort of centre ground and a proliferation of opposition parties of across, all the way across the spectrum. It, is that a good thing for the British Constitution? Is it possible that Corbyn could win? Well, I mean, anything's possible. I mean, anything's possible. Um, you know, we should never say never in British politics. But, you know, the fact is the Conservative Party in government has been... Um, stealing some of Ed Miliband's policies, to put it crudely. I mean, they've adopted things, some of which, like the, the national living wage, are more radical uh, than uh, Ed Miliband would have implemented, it would appear, had he been Prime Minister now. So, you know, the Conservatives are moving in some ways towards the centre ground anyway. So Labour has to think about that as well. And if they get into the position of... You know, only appealing to a small segment of the electorate or a smaller segment that likes it a lot but can't then reach out across the centre ground, then they would be in risk of not being able to win. So whilst you can never say, you know, never, something can happen unexpectedly, as of today, there is a fight going on for the soul of the Labour Party, but that's also important to the rest of us, you know, for everybody. If you believe in a plural political system, which most of us do, what you need is a powerful government and a powerful opposition. And at the moment, we have a powerful government. I mean, you know, it's not got a big majority, but it's a, it's a majority government. But we do not have a powerful opposition. And we need one. All countries need a powerful opposition. The question, I suppose, a more philosophical question, does it matter whether the opposition is a powerful opposing force or an alternative government? Well, it is, of course, true that parties in opposition can change government policy, can affect the political debate, even if they are not in office and may not even look as if they're going to get in office. But if you look as if you're going to get into office, and I think you do have to be pretty convincingly looking as if you can be in office next time, that gives you far greater power, far greater toehold. But anyway, you can't do things unless you win office. So whether you want to look as if you're going to win office or not, unless you can win office, you can't bring about the changes for the people that your party purports to represent. So, you know, it's a kind of winner-takes-all game. On that pragmatic note, thank you very much, Tony. You're off the hot seat.